A few weeks ago, my wife and I uh, were watching TV one night, and I just asked her, I said, babe, if our life was made into a love story, who would you want to play you in the movie? And of course, she was not going to go until I went first. And so this is my answer. I chose Nick Offerman. I imagine myself as Ron Swanson. And if, listen, if you've never seen Parks and Rec, I'm so sad for you right now that you don't see what an awesome selection this is. And so... Heather chose Viola Davis. If, I, if I'm Ron Swanson, she imagines herself as the woman king. Aren't we, a, aren't we a lovely couple? Now, I know what you're thinking. The answer is yes, we do mentor younger couples. Now, oh, I, listen, I've got a serious reason for starting off with this bit of silliness. I want you to think about how do you see you? How do you imagine you? Over the course of this series, you've heard me say this, let your identity drive your activity. The story you tell yourself about yourself, that is your identity. And that is the most dominant factor, that's the major factor that's going to shape how you act in life. And there's another implication from this that I don't think we've fully explored yet. Maybe we haven't even acknowledged it. How you see you, how I see me. It's going to shape how we respond to what we read in Scripture. And today, the passage that we're going to read, it flows out of the context that we read last week. It flows out of the very same thought that we read last week. And what we're, you're going to not be able to understand today, but if you really want to understand today, if you really want to see it in its full context, you've got to go back and watch last week's message if you did not get a chance to watch it. So today, we're just going to dive in. We're turning the corner. We're moving into 1 Peter chapter 3. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands. Can I get an amen? No? All right. All right. All right. Security team, be ready. All right. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without the words by, your behavior, by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornments such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold and jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands like Sarah who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughter if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way. In the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives. Treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Now listen, I've been doing this long enough to know that I know there are people in this room and I know there are folks who are watching online and you're saying, Rick, there's nothing you could say today that's going to get me to take that seriously. And at the other end of the spectrum, there are probably folks who are wondering and maybe even concerned that, Rick, are you going to say some stuff to try to explain away 
why people don't have to take that seriously. And then there's a lot of folks, probably in the middle, and they're just like, listen, I'll do whatever it is that Jesus wants me to do. I just need a little help understanding this. And whichever approach you're coming from, whichever one of those statements best describes you, I am so glad that you are here because I am convinced I'm convinced that what we're going to talk about today, that this passage actually has far more encouragement and is perhaps more helpful and more hopeful than ever you have allowed yourself to imagine before. And today I want to give us a framework to view it. And this framework is going to be like a decoder ring. And if any point it feels like you're stuck, this framework is going to give us clarity. Jesus is the lens through which we see ourselves. And we are the lens through which others see Jesus. This is the framework through which we see ourselves, and we're the lens through which others see Jesus. And if you don't wrestle this down, if you don't give yourself whatever amount of time is necessary to come to terms with this, I just don't think you're ever going to be able to come to terms with a lot of the stuff that we read in 1 Peter. Now, a couple of weeks ago, it was in week three, we did this. We talked about hermeneutics. We did a little hermeneutics 101. Hermeneutics is the art and science of interpretation. And there are a number of rules and, and guidelines that are helpful, but I want to draw our attention to this one. Context is supreme. Probably the biggest mistake that people make when they read Scripture. Maybe the most common mistake that people make when they read Scripture is not understanding the context. We have to inform ourselves about the context. And there are a lot of aspects to context, but two that we really have to remember, especially when we read something like this, we have to remember historical context and cultural context. We've got to ask ourselves, what was going on when Peter wrote this? So this is our context question. What was a typical home like in Roman culture? Just what was the norm? Let me give you just some facts. I can't give you all the facts, but I'll give you some important facts. The husband or the dad was the authority over the household and everyone was subordinate to him. The husband or the dad had the legal authority to kill infant children without consent of the wife. The husband, the dad, could arrange marriages for the children and the husband or the dad could even uh, force the divorce of an adult child. In Roman society, both men and women could opt for divorce, but the laws always and only favored men financially. It was common and permissible for men to have affairs. Married women were never allowed to have an affair. Domestic abuse was technically illegal in Roman society, but if you define abuse by a modern understanding or by modern laws, then we have to concede that abuse was tolerated in Roman society. In Roman society, men had social privileges and advantages that women did not have. Men had legal advantages and privileges that women did not have. And if you're wondering, well, why did the ladies put up with that? In our hyper-individualized culture, the culture in which we live, I don't know that we can really understand the power of the home structure in which they lived underneath. The home was the most important aspect of the foundation for a stable society and a strong Roman state. I don't know that I have the ability, I don't know if any of us have the ability to fully appreciate all the legal pressures and the societal pressures that protected and held up this ideal Greco-Roman home. Now, 
There were times that women absolutely did rebel. There were instances in Roman history where women protested in the streets. They barricaded streets. But this rebellion was largely restricted to wealthy Roman women, and it was short-lived. So I want you to, ladies, I want to ask you to do something. I want you to imagine with me. Imagine with me that this is the culture in which you live. You're trying to follow Jesus, and your husband has rejected the gospel. How do you live in that culture, in this structure? But we need to crank up the heat a little bit because I want to show you exactly how difficult that was. We're going to turn to the writing of Plutarch. He was a Roman uh, historian and biographer and philosopher during the exact same time period that he lived and wrote that First Peter was written. He writes this, a wife ought not to make friends of her own, but to enjoy her husband's friends in common with him. The gods are the first and foremost important friends. On second thought, ladies, you don't even need your husband's friends. The gods are enough for you. Wherefore, it is becoming for a wife to worship and to know only the gods that her husband believes in and to shut the front door tight upon all queer or strange rituals and outlandish superstitions. For with no god do stealthy and secret rites performed by a woman find any favor. How are we doing, ladies? There were a couple of exceptions, but for the most part, the might of Rome cracked down hard on any religion or religious expression that empowered women. Women weren't even allowed to have their own friends. That was discouraged. If you're thinking, well, I wouldn't even get married. Uh, Guess what? It was illegal to not get married. You had no choice. There was nothing about Roman society that was really interested in in women's opinions on the subject matter. You just kind of represent the the opinion and you parrot the opinion of your husband. And I could cite to you source after source from this time period where it says women are inferior to men. This is what was believed. A woman is a deformed man. And everything was about subordinating women to the authority of men. So here's a question we have to ask ourselves when we read what Peter wrote. This is a question. It's really important. Is Peter responding to what is or is he revealing what should be? Is Peter just giving instructions, responding to the situation that everybody's in? Or is Peter writing to reveal the way things are supposed to be? And folks who say, I think Peter is revealing the way things are supposed to be, there are a couple of follow-up questions that we have to to ask before we can land on that one. And here are the follow-up questions. I'm going to use a term here, New Testament household codes. New Testament household codes refer to the passages in the New Testament where apostles give instructions to husbands, wives, kids, and slaves, right? They're called the New Testament household codes. You read it, um, Ephesians chapter 5, Colossians chapter 3, uh, 1 Peter 2 and 3, uh, 1 Corinthians 7. If New Testament household codes reveal what should be, why do they perfectly parallel Greco-Roman ideals? If New Testament household codes reveal what should be, then why do we reject slavery right now? This is not a gotcha question. It's not intended to end the conversation, but these are questions that deserve an answer. These are questions that demand an answer. I'm coming from the perspective that Peter is writing instructions to men and women 
on how to stand fast in the true grace of God in the culture in which they find themselves and the institutions in which they find themselves. Peter is responding to what is. He's not trying to reveal the way things are supposed to be. He says this, wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that any of, if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Right off the bat, he's letting us know this is not the way it's supposed to be. It is not God's ideal that the wives are followers of Jesus, but the husbands don't. He says in the same way. Well, in the same way as what? <laughs> well, this is where we got to go back to last week in the previous chapter. It flows out of the same thought. In the same way that we're all supposed to submit to governing authorities, even when they're unjust, and we do so for the sake of Jesus. In the same way that slaves are to submit to masters who are unjust, and they do so out of reverence for God, Peter just keeps it going. Wives, in the same way, you also submit. And it's important for us to pause and remember that submission is for everybody, for men and women. And the way that submission is expressed is not going to be identical with every believer. But the call and command to submission is universal for every believer, for both men and women. What does Peter say here? He says, so that. So that what? If you were here last week, you remember that that Peter said we should live our lives. This is what we discovered. We should live our lives in such a way that we inspire people to worship Jesus. It's the exact same thing Peter's talking about right here. That's why he says, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they'll be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. If your husband doesn't know Jesus, by the way that you live your life, he'll come to know Jesus. That's why you should do this. I want to ask you to write this down. You don't have to speak to make a statement. You don't have to speak to make a statement. Your life is a sermon, so preach. Remember this quote that we just read from Plutarch. It captured Roman society. Women were not allowed to have their own religion. Whatever the religion was of their husband, that's what they had to go along with. Believe it or not, when a woman got married, she publicly renounced the religion of her dad and swore her allegiance to the gods that her husband believed in. There was nothing about Roman society that considered, well, who do you want to worship or what do you believe in or what's your opinion? It just wasn't a part of Roman society. Women, you reflect the opinion and the thought of your dad until you get married and now you reflect the opinion and the thought of your husband. Now combine that with what One of the worst things that a woman could do in Roman society was publicly embarrass or disrespect her husband. If a woman did not get with the social program, her husband's reputation was at stake. Peter is writing into a complex and dynamic social reality. And Peter is giving instructions to Christian women who need clarity. How do I follow Jesus in this? Ladies, imagine that you are following Jesus. Imagine you live in this day and you've given your allegiance to him. And this is what you're learning. You are chosen. You are a royal priest. You are a member of a holy nation. You are God's special possession. Is it any surprise that the gospel was irresistible to women in the Roman society? 
Is it any surprise that the gospel was irresistible to slaves and Roman society? This was radical dignity affirmation. It was dignity like they had never seen or heard of before. Now, ladies, you're following Jesus. Your husband has rejected the gospel, and he doesn't want to hear about it from you. And maybe he's not even letting you participate and gather with your local church. What do you do? What do you do? Do you fight him? Do you disrespect him publicly in front of his peers? Do you manipulate him? Do you cut him off? Do you try to wear him down until he relents? Peter says, stand fast in the true grace of God. Your life is a sermon. Preach. Jesus is the lens through which we see ourselves. And we are the lens through which others see Jesus. What do we want them to see? And if there's any woman here or any woman watching online, you're trying to follow Jesus and your husband is not interested in that. Would you look to Jesus, follow the example of Jesus, and preach the true grace of God with your actions? Now, I do not want to be a guy up here trying to mansplain to you how to be a wife. Not interested in that. I do want to be the guy who encourages you. I do want to be the guy who takes a second to acknowledge if this is the situation you're in, that's tough. That's hard. I want to be the guy who who honors you, who prays for you. I want to be the guy who uses all the resources at my disposal to lead this congregation, to rally around you, and to support you because that's what a church family does. Peter continues. He says, Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. Now, this might feel like a bit of a curveball. Like, why would it, why would it not be okay to wear nice clothes and, and, and have elaborate hairstyles and wear jewelry? I'm looking around. Some of you came looking nice today. This is going to be a little awkward. <laughs> remember, context is important. Earlier I said that women did rebel against the social structure. It was largely restricted to wealthy women. And one of the ways that women rebelled was through fine clothes, elaborate hairstyles, and expensive jewelry. And if that sounds strange, like why would that be rebellion? It's because there were many men during this day and time and they were writing about women's appearance and they were basically saying, tone it down, ladies. They were writing that women should be as plain as possible when they appeared in public. Everybody's on the search. Everybody's on the search for significance, security, and satisfaction. And when you feel like there are people who have power that you don't have and they're using it to take your dignity from you and you feel like you're in a system that's designed to take your dignity away from you, eventually every single one of us is going to say enough's enough. And these women, they were dressing nice and they were wearing jewelry and they were uh, giving attention to their hair and it was a way of saying, you cannot erase me. I am here. And they were expressing their individuality and they were expressing their agency. So how could that be a problem? Well, there was more to it than that. There were other things that were attached to this. In addition to simply emphasizing physical beauty, 
This was also attached to sexual freedom and promiscuity and a refusal to have children. Elaborate hairstyles, fancy clothes, and jewelry was associated with social disruption, sexual promiscuity, and being anti-family. So let's remind ourselves at this point again, you don't have to speak to make a statement. This works both ways, doesn't it? So, if elaborate hairstyles and jewelry and fancy clothes, if that communicates that the statement that makes is, we're here to start a rebellion, we're sexually available, and we're anti-family, Peter's saying, let's don't be associated with that. Let's use the freedom that we have to represent King Jesus. Jesus is the lens through which we see ourselves, and we are the lens through which others see Jesus. What do we want them to see? Now, there's nothing wrong with nice clothes and jewelry and having good hair. Nothing wrong with that. But if that gets in the way, if that gets in the way of being able to represent Jesus, then we use our freedom, we use our freedom to say no to that thing so that we can say yes to representing Jesus. What I'm talking about is the kind of thing, anybody who wants to be a wise person, we've got to learn this lesson. This is what wise people have learned. There are times that we say no to ourselves so that we can say yes to something better. There are times that we say no to something that we are free to do so we can say yes to something better. Now, I have this, I don't know if you can see, I got a little penguin on my shirt right here. It's part of the brand. To the best of my knowledge, there's nothing too provocative associated with penguins. But imagine, but imagine with me that prominently displayed on my clothing today, I'm wearing one of these two symbols. <laughs> Is there anything inherently sinful or wrong about a donkey or an elephant? No. But if I was wearing one of these two symbols, every single one of you would interpret that as a political statement, even if I never talked about politics. And that political statement would overshadow all the things that I want to say about Jesus and what it means to follow Jesus. This is what wisdom requires. Wisdom requires that we evaluate the statements that we're making, and that is much bigger than words. I want to draw our attention back to, to this verse. Peter says that talking about the kind of unfading beauty, he said it should be the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. I want to be clear about something. This is not a prescription for biblical womanhood. That's not what Peter is doing here. There are, there are no such thing as feminine Christian virtues. Now, clearly, there is a big difference between men and women. God designed us distinct. He designed us differently. But there are no, you're, you're never going to find it. And I do mean never. You're never going to find anywhere in Scripture a list of these are masculine Christian virtues and these are feminine Christian virtues. This right here is not a description of what femininity is. This is the exact same way Jesus is described in the New Testament. This is not an appeal to some idea of biblical womanhood. This is Peter calling women to do the same thing everybody is called to. Look to Jesus and look like Jesus. Look to Jesus and follow his example. 
And he continues, for in this way, the holy women of the past put their hope in God. This is primarily about a relationship with God who used to, that's how they adorn themselves. That's the kind of unfading beauty they adorn themselves with, their faith. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him Lord. So far, I haven't been able to get Heather uh, to call me Lord. We're going to be working on this this week. Y'all can pray. Y'all can pray for my household. All right. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. All right, little quiz. I've been saying all throughout this series, if you really want to understand Peter, you got to be a happy student of, you got to study and know the what? Old Testament. Yes, all right, the Old Testament. Good job. I wish, I wish I had time to, to dig into some of these stories of husbands and wives here. But let's pay attention to the ones that Peter named, Abraham and Sarah. If you don't know, you need to know. If you grew up going to Sunday school like I did, then you probably know this. Twice, twice, Abraham, this Abraham and that Sarah, twice Abraham got his wife Sarah to pretend to be a sister, and he gave two other dudes permission to sleep with her. Both times, God had to supernaturally intervene and come to her rescue. Anybody who reads this, as some sort of model for men are always supposed to be at the top and women are supposed to subordinate themselves to them, we got to make some observations. Number one, Peter is writing to women who are in a difficult situation. Number two, this flows out of the very same thought and context. All of us are supposed to submit to governing authorities even when they're unjust. It's for the sake of Jesus. Out of that, slaves are to submit to masters, even the ones who are unjust, out of reverence for God. Now you wives, in the same way, submit, even though you are an institution that is built on inequity, a kind of injustice. And then he specifically references a husband and wife, a husband who put his wife in a horrific situation twice. This is not Peter saying, hey, this is some idealized version of the way it's supposed to be. This is Peter presenting to men and to women how to stand fast in the true grace of God even when you're in a situation that you cannot stand. And there's an important rule of context and hermeneutics we need to remember. When something is quoted, you got to go back to where it was originally quoted so you can understand it in that context to see how it's being applied here. Do you know how many times in the Old Testament it is recorded that Sarah called Abraham Lord? One time. And by the way, ladies, that was a common term of communicating respect. That's it. There's one time in the entire Old Testament where it's recorded that Sarah called Abraham Lord. You can read about it in Genesis 18. God comes to them and says, you're going to have a son. Small problem. Do you know what it was? Both Abraham and Sarah were old. And Sarah calls Abraham Lord in the context of giving consent to a little marital enrichment, a little baby making. Why is this context important? Because Peter's talking about fear. And Peter is writing to women who are married to men who have rejected the gospel. And remember the way that Roman society was structured. Everybody in the household had to go with the religion of the dad, of the husband. And these women were probably scared. And I think Peter is being very pastoral. 
He's saying to women who are probably afraid that the kids that they have and the future kids that they may have, that their husbands will not let them worship Jesus. And Peter's saying, remember, you preach the true grace of God with your life. Don't let fear hold you back. Don't let fear hold you down. God is with you. And after all of that, he turns his attention to the guys. He says, husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. I would completely understand. I wouldn't agree with it, but I would completely understand if some people feel a little offended right now. So going back to last week in the previous chapter, Peter writes this big old chunk to slaves and then he reads a little bit smaller chunk to, to, to women and then by the time he gets to the men, it's just one sentence. I mean, what else do you expect from a guy who's probably a little misogynistic, right? Trying to keep the ladies down. To which I would say, not so fast. In this day, there are no examples outside of the New Testament. There are just no examples of people writing to slaves or writing directly to women. There are lots of people who wrote about slaves. They talked about slaves and they talked about women, but they never talked to them directly. And people who know ancient literature tell us that this was radical and the dignity that it affirmed simply by addressing them directly. But it's bigger than that. The most important person or the most important group is always addressed first. And Peter flips that upside down. Slaves who are on the bottom are addressed first and they're given the most attention. Women who are above slaves but beneath men in Roman society, they're addressed before men and they're given a little bit less attention. And then men who are at the top in Roman society are addressed last and they're given the least amount of attention. It's not just the statements that Peter makes that speaks to us. It's the way this letter is structured that is radically and beautifully subversive and how it affirms their dignity. And then he says to the husbands, in the same way. In the same way as what? In the same way that we all submit to governing authorities, even when they're unjust, for the sake of Jesus, and the same way that slaves submit to masters who are unjust out of deep reference for God, and the same way that wives submit, and the same way husbands submit to. And if you're thinking, well, that doesn't sound right, Rick, because it says, be considerate. What I want you to know is that in the Greek, in the original Greek, that verb, be considerate, is not there. Let me show you what it would sound like if we read it directly out of Greek. Husbands, in the same way, according to knowledge, live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner, as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. There is a verb that is needed here. People who understand Greek, Greek scholars tell us there is a verb that is needed here. There's a basic rule of Greek grammar. It was totally normal to write a sentence and to skip the verb. And when a verb is skipped, you bring it from the previous sentence down. You bring it from the previous section down and you just automatically assume it and insert it in that sentence. So when there's a gap where there's a verb needed, you go back to the last time that in the same way was used and you use that exact same verb and insert it in there. The question might be, 
Well, why did Peter write it in such a way that everybody would have read it and they would have understood that you're supposed to submit, but he didn't make them have to read the word submit? Why? Has anyone in here ever had to do an employee review? You had a direct report, you had an employee review. You guys know what I'm talking about. Now, imagine the scenario and you have an employee and they just do not have the skills needed to do the job. You could say to them, you are incompetent. Or you could say, there are some skills that if you develop them, they would really allow you to thrive in this role. Have you said the exact same thing? Yes. Either way, it is a hard message to receive, but one is easier to hear and receive than the other. But the message is the same. Peter is delivering a hard message to Roman men, but he's delivering it in a way that is easiest for them to receive and act on. You can interchange considerate and submissive if you want, but if you read in the same way, but you allow yourself to go, but not really in the same way, you are ignoring what Peter wrote. Men are to submit too. And you're thinking, well, that doesn't sound right. I want to draw your attention to what the Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 5, where he wrote about wives submit to your husbands. Husbands, then you're going to serve your wife and love her like Christ loved the church. He kicked off that whole section with Ephesians 5.21 that says submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. It's almost identical to what Peter said. And I'm from the South, so we would translate all y'all submit to all y'all. The longest section, the longest section in the New Testament where it talks about husbands and wives and their relationship is 1 Corinthians 7. It's the longest section. And the Apostle Paul, when he wrote that, he is so direct, he is so disruptive, he is so clear on the fact that men are supposed to submit to their wives too. He said, men, do you know who's the authority over your body? Your wife is the authority over your body. Are you kidding? Yeah, you're not even the authority over your body. Your wife's the boss, not you. Wives, you're not the authority over your body. Your husband's the authority. It's your submitting to each other. So what is submission supposed to look like from husbands to wives? Respect and honor them. Well, what does it mean to live with them as the weaker partner? Never use your legal advantages or privileges against them. Never use your social advantages or privileges against them. Never use your physical advantages against your wife. And treat her as an equal, as a co-heir, as an equal and recipient of the gracious gift of life from, from Jesus. In Roman society, it was men and women. But in Jesus' kingdom, men and women are equal. And only people who have freedom can choose to submit. Men, slaves, women, we are all free in Christ. And we get to use our freedom to be like Jesus and to place ourselves beneath the other. Let's make sure guys, let's make sure that we're letting the weight of these words really hit us. Peter said, so that, so that nothing will hinder our prayers. And so we're just going to summarize it like this. 
Men who can't be bothered to submit to their wives shouldn't bother submitting their prayers. Men who can't be bothered to submit to their wives shouldn't bother submitting to their prayers. And I bet there are a lot of you guys who are saying with me, yeah, of course we're going to do this. Of course we're absolutely going to do this. Because you know why? We would never expect other people to follow Jesus in a way that we're not willing to ourselves. Of course we're going to represent Jesus. Of course, Jesus is the lens through which we see ourselves. And we are the lens through which others see Jesus. And what do we want them to see? We want them to see him. Jesus came and submitted to the will of the Father. He came as a servant who was submissive and he served our need. Jesus submitted himself to the greatest injustice so that in him we could be justified. That's who Jesus is. That's what he does. That's our king. And if it's not beneath the king to submit, it certainly isn't beneath his servants. If it's not beneath the king to submit, it certainly isn't beneath his servants. And when we observe communion, like we're going to in just a few minutes, we are remembering that Jesus, who is king, was a submissive service for our servant for our good. He submitted himself to God's wrath against sin on the cross so that we could receive reward. He submitted himself to shame so that we could receive honor. 